Hey, Elboists, have you checked out MKL Reads lately? MKL is the one-stop shop for handmade oboe reads where you can try reads from various makers and then select the one that is best for you. How cool is that? Visit mklreads.com and enter coupon code DOUBLE SPACE READ SPACE DISH, all caps, for free shipping on your first order. Don't you hate feeling bored with all the music on your stand? Well, luckily, you never have to feel that way again. JDW Sheet Music offers a wide variety of chamber music pieces for wind players of all ages. Their catalog includes duets, trios, quintets, and even double reed choir pieces for beginner, intermediate, and advanced players. Each of the pieces on the site will include sample pages, audio excerpts, and short descriptions. JDW Sheet Music has also made it possible to access the music sooner through the new digital download-only feature. Pieces that are marked digital download only will be made available immediately after purchase. To learn more about JDW Sheet Music, please visit www.jdwsheetmusic.com. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Jackie, happy July. Happy July. By the way, this is Galit. That's Jackie. I know. We have gotten <laughs> so many people saying they cannot tell our voice apart. I don't know. Maybe I need to start talking like this or something. I, I don't know. I think so. I vote for that voice. Oh. By the way, if I sound sleepy, it's because I'm sleepy. It is 8 a.m. and it is July. <laughs> So your girl has been sleeping in. Well, it's so funny because I get up, you know, we've spoken at length about my early riser, early birdness. (laughs) And so I was up at five today. I, in my true introvert fashion, my favorite life hack is to do my grocery shopping at five, five thirty because it goes really quickly. We all know the annoying grocery store stuff. So I love to get up early and go. So I've been to the grocery store. I've been back. I've had a nutritious breakfast. I'm showered. I'm here. And uh, yeah, I'm ready to go. I'm living my best life right now. (laughs) I rolled out of bed at 745. (laughs) I fully have plans on going back to the bed. Everything's cool. (laughs) So Jackie, you had a complaint. Would you like to air your complaint? I would. I would like to air my complaint. I feel, I don't know how you feel, the whole conversation and rhetoric that I'm experiencing from my loved ones, my (laughs) so-called friends, my colleagues, (laughs) my students, is that summer is ending and we are on the cusp of a new academic year. This is not true. I am here to debunk <laughs> this myth. As we sit recording this, it is July 13th. There is over a month before the academic year starts. 
I feel like I was telling Chris the other day, you know, that scene in the Alice in Wonderland cartoon where she's like running up the stairs and then the stairs start dissolving on either side of her. And then she's just like running up this step. It's like that is what people are trying to do to my summer. I am not here for it. We have over a month. I am here. I'm Jackie Wilson and I'm here with a message for you. We have over a month. You know what it is? It's fall inflation. Well, I love fall, but it's like I love my vacation time as well. And I have a lot that I'm trying to get done before the academic year begins. Mm -hmm. And I have time to do it. I will not buy into the (laughs) lies. (laughs) Well, I confess, I have been one of those people who feel like summer (laughs) is over. Well, how has your summer been going? How have you been approaching your summer and whatnot? Sleeping in. Sleeping in, which is good. It, I, I always feel like it takes me a long time to sort of settle into summer. So the first week that I slept in, it was almost like I would wake up and then have a small panic attack that I slept so long, like 9 a.m. Mm-hmm. I'm like, <laughs> oh, my God, I slept until 9 a.m. But you, you very quickly get used to that. And I actually had a true vacation for the first time in a long time where I didn't check my email every day. And um, that was great. Did you bring your oboe? I did. And I didn't practice that much. (laughs) There were a lot of people around. So I practiced a little. I did. I at least did long tones every day, but I didn't really practice that much. So now that I'm back, it's been actually nice to get back into the routine and build my chops back up. And I'm going to see you in just a few days mm-hmm. um, in Wisconsin. And then I get to teach at Blue Lake this summer for session three. And then it's back to Hattiesburg to get ready for the school year. So I sort of do feel like summer is over, but... <laughs> Well, I asked about bringing your instrument because I feel like that's a question that we all struggle with a little bit is like, am I permitted to go on this trip and not bring my instrument? And is that irresponsible or unprofessional? And me personally, I think it is 1000% acceptable to take time for yourself and to not bring your instrument. See, I'm conflicted about it because... A lot, the times when I feel the best are the times where I've had the time on my instrument. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. getting, getting that daily, I don't even know what it is. It's like just having that routine are the times where I feel the most relaxed when I've done it. Mm -hmm. So I'm a little conflicted. I'm a little conflicted about whether or not it's good to, to bring it or not. I guess I'm conflicted as well, because I had a clarinet playing friend once who was like kind of down on herself for taking some time off. And she said, I mean, there was a two and a half year period where I played every single day. And I was like, whoa, like that. I was kind of inspired by her intensity. Mm -hmm. Um, But I have not had a two and a half year period where I've played every (laughs) single day of my life without exception. Um, I mean, when I'm on a trip, like, obviously, I did not bring the bassoon to Italy and France. The point of that Mm -hmm. was to rejuvenate and self care and um, 
spend time together. But when like you go see family who understands that music is such an important part mm-hmm. of your life and that practice is part of your life and they're not going to hold it against you if you take a half hour to two hours, whatever your personal thing is to yourself to play your instrument, then it's like, oh, this is very much my choice, <laughs> you know, and, and then I guess it's just about tempering time off and what is responsible for you and what you have on your plate and whatnot. But yeah, I'm, I'm always curious to get people's thought on the time off question and how much is too much and, mm-hmm. and whatnot. Maybe we should open that up to a, a call for participation for yeah, discussion sometime idea. soon. Yeah. And then like, I don't know about you, but I always feel like the summer, because it is so um, unstructured, I always feel a little out to sea. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, I don't have my routine and I don't, it's just, I'm not a person who does no structure very well. So I, if you're out there and you're listening, like, that is normal. <laughs> and that is okay. And um, in this interview with Aaron Hill, um, he talks a lot about, you know, taking care of your mental health. And I would encourage everybody to like, just take a minute and take stock of their mental health, because I personally find summertime to be challenging in terms of, you know, keeping any everything in a good place and like, maintaining, good perspective because it does feel more isolated and it's um, much less structured, obviously, than the school year. You know, that's kind of interesting you bring that up um, because I have just started um, kind of a cool idea that, I don't know, maybe some people would listen to this and be like, that is not my style. But I am currently doing a McNair internship. um, And for people who aren't familiar, the McNair program serves Uh, traditionally underrepresented populations in higher ed. Um, So first-generation college students, low-income students, uh, racially underrepresented people. And it hooks them up with a mentor with whom they do research and kind of collaborate on strategies with which to go forward into graduate programs. So I'm working with actually a French horn student And she and I were kind of discussing this notion. And so we have started a 30-day challenge. What we're doing is every day we have to listen to one standard work, either uh, solo or orchestral for our instrument. And it has to be attentive listening. So passive listening does not count. The only thing we can be doing is paying attention to this recording. Um, we have a practice quota that we're trying to reach by the end. So mine is a certain number of hours, but we have to report our practice time every day. And then we also um, have to incorporate recording ourselves into practice, which we all know is good for us, but it's really easy to not do. It's Mm -hmm. a really easy thing to like, (laughs) didn't get to that today. (laughs) Oopsie. Uh, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So we have to record ourselves and then uh, in a text message, we say, I listened to this work, I practiced this much, and here's my proof recording. And we're not listening to each other's recordings and we're deleting them, but it's just that accountability. But I think it's going to be a really great way to kind of add structure and accountability because it's like, this is a student I'm doing this with, so I cannot be slacking (laughs) off and like, oh, I, I didn't feel like it today. Like I have a lot of, uh, you know face to lose if I don't hold Uh up my end of the bargain. (laughs) So 
That's you know. such a great idea. I love it. I like that idea of doing it with somebody else because I were if I were just to do it by myself, it would definitely stress me out. <laughs> but I think if I did it with someone else, it would be better. <laughs> right. Well, we asked our listeners for their summer strategies and we got some responses. So we heard from listener Mason on Instagram and they say, I usually find out the honor band music early and try to get a jump start on the material so that I'm not stressing during the school year. I also go to camps slash festivals to hear older musicians and their sound slash musicality inspires me to keep getting better. That is pro level A plus summer strategy. <laughs> yeah, it's a honor band music. That sounds like a high schooler, maybe. Probably seems like it. That's a really focused high schooler. Bravo. I know. I don't even want to talk about what I was doing when I was in high school. I know. During the summer. Did I put on deodorant today? Uh. <laughs> I was obsessed with color guard and I was obsessed with being able to do a thousand rights and a thousand lefts on rifle. And I did it. And I was so proud of myself. And I had the forearms of Popeye. That's pretty impressive. And we also heard from the Penn State Bassoon Studio. They say, form chamber groups with friends in the area and read music together. You guys are so much more on top of it (laughs) than I am. (laughs) On Facebook, Jeff Ackerman says, recharge. Go to the beach as much as possible. I live in Florida. Well, good for you, Jeff. (laughs) I live in Missouri, so (laughs) enjoy the beach. Stay motivated. Tie as many read blanks as I can for the fall, finally having time to listen to other oboists without interruption. So this is a very good strategy, getting ahead on blanks. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Have you done that? Not this summer, but there have been other summers that I've gone into the school year with hundreds ready to go. So I just have to clip and scrape and... Mm -hmm. Kind of wishing I'd done that now. (laughs) Speaking of which, shout out to, I don't know if you've seen this, Galit, Lee Munoz of Go Bassoon is doing a challenge, just like we were talking about. And she is doing, it's called Blanca Palooza. I think she does this every summer. I think she does, but this is the first time she's invited others, as far as I know, to like get in on it. Yeah. And so the challenge, um, it started a couple days ago, but I think you can join in at any time. And it is essentially July 10th to August 10th. Choose a number one to 1000 and make blanks and you can join the Facebook group and post your updates and have community with other read makers and Barton Kane sponsor of the podcast is giving a 15% discount off all Kane that's so for awesome. Palooza participants so yeah that's another way to get out of your summer slump make some reads just go do what you do and you'll feel better Hey, let's talk about Jenna Ingalls Reads. She has built her business on providing high-quality handmade reads, education, and a sympathetic ear to oboists across the country. When you order from Jenna Ingalls Reads, you get prompt communication, reads, or cane handcrafted to your specifications and cheerful, friendly customer service. All orders are mailed within one week, sometimes much faster. Single orders or monthly read subscriptions are welcome, and she'll work with you to find the combination of response, resistance, stability, and flexibility that is right for you. Podcast listeners can use the code DISH, 
all caps, for 10% off their first order at JennetIngle.com. That's J-E-N-N-E-T-I-N-G-L-E dot com. So we all know that Genda Industries is known for their reed knives, sharpening, and overall amazing quality in the double reed world. But there is so much more going on at Genda Industries. Did you know that you can get oboe and bassoon reeds from Genda Industries at the Artisan Mall? The Genda Industries Artisan Mall, it's like a farmer's market, and it's filled with talented local and regional reed makers selling their own reeds. It's a great way to try out some new reeds from new makers, and who knows, one day maybe your reeds will be for sale. Add the code DRDGENDA, that's all capitals, no spaces, at checkout, and get 10% off any Genda reed knife, maintenance kit, reed knife sharpening book, cutting block, and reed tool row. Visit them at GendaIndustries.com. Oh, and they're much more than just reed knives. For today, we are welcoming to the podcast our guest, Aaron Hill, Assistant Professor of Oboe at the University of Nevada, Reno. Welcome, Aaron. Thanks so much, Jackie. Very excited to be on the show. I think I told you in person how I've been loving the show since it started and just every episode I listen to. I wish it were around when I was a teenager. Oh, that's so nice. Well, then you know that the opening question I'm going to ask is, can you tell us how you came to play the oboe? I was very lucky that I had music teachers who supported me doing all sorts of different things. I think the first instrument I played was the piano. I was about four years old and my older sister had just started playing and it looked like a lot of fun to me. So I asked for lessons and I had a piano teacher who was really cool about mixing methodical piano methods with letting me figure out the songs that I knew that I was liking from movies and things like that, which was great for ear training. I played for a few years, and when it came time to choose a band instrument in fifth grade, uh, my dad had bought a flute before I was born sometime in the 70s and had never had it worked on. It wasn't a very good instrument. But since it was there, uh, it ended up being what I played. So I played flute for a couple years and started at a new school in seventh grade. And my first year there was the first year that they hired a specialized instrumental instructor. And so she, uh, her name's Leslie Sigmund. She's amazing. And she started a group from scratch with eight of us in the theater tech storage room. <laughs> <laughs> and out of the eight of us, there was already someone else who had a flute and her flute worked and she'd been playing for a long time. So I didn't get to play flute parts. She put a part on my stand that said oboe on it. And I didn't know what that was, but I said, well, why don't I just, what, what's an oboe? Should I just play that? And she had actually, she, she had, it was a little bit of, um, uh, she was hoping it would work out that way. She had read some articles on what's the, t what's the personality type you should put on the oboe. And she read me as an oboist, uh, and was hoping that I'd ask that. So yeah, I rented an oboe second semester, seventh grade, and she was very good about helping me find a good private teacher. So I got lessons from Joyce Kelly, who was getting her master's at USC at the time. And Pretty quickly, I got involved playing in youth orchestras. And the cool thing about playing oboe that I'm sure a lot of people listening have in common is that before you really know what you're doing, you get to play with really good groups. So when I was in seventh grade, I was getting to play with high school groups. And it was incredibly inspiring being around people who knew what they were doing. And I remember playing in my first orchestra rehearsal and being completely hooked and having that be what I wanted to do. 
with most of my spare time. So I, yeah, I played in a couple youth orchestras and I got to spend five summers uh, going to the Interlochen Arts Camp. And so Oboe got to be a way for me not to just uh, be, be friends with people who grew up around me in LA, but people from all around the country, all around the world. It felt like a way to really broaden my experiences. And as I went through high school, I, I played all sorts of different styles. I wasn't sure I wanted to be, uh, an oboist necessarily professionally, but, but I, yeah, I played saxophone, clarinet, kept playing flute, played a lot of jazz, had a couple, I had a blues band, a jazz band. And I, I was very lucky that David Weiss, uh, who was, he was teaching at USC, played principal in the LA Phil. He was so generous letting, anyone in the community go to USC's studio class. So I was, I was getting to hear these uh, college and graduate students play. There were some really good high school students going to those studio classes at the time. So like when I was in high school, I was getting to hear Leon Wong, Dwight Perry, Christina Fulton, uh, some really wonderful players. Uh, yeah. T- Tessa Vinson, Jeremy Kesselman, Jack Hosen Harrell. It was a really nice time to be a high school oboist in L.A. He was, he was very generous with his time. He would take us all surfing, and we'd get to have these wonderful life conversations uh, in the van on the way to and from the beach. And he really fostered a supportive environment for all of us. So we felt like we were a community with each other. It never felt competitive. And um, when it came time to choose colleges, I I wasn't completely sure if I wanted to be an oboist or a jazz player, but I ended up going to the University of Michigan, uh, knowing that I would have any option, whether I wanted to double major, study something else, uh, play classical jazz. And it landed well with oboe because, uh, in advance of my, my sophomore year there, uh, Nancy King got hired and I, I know you had her on the show. She's one of the most incredible oboist human beings, uh, that's ever lived. And so I was really lucky to get to study with her in college. In my junior year of college, I had a friend taking an audition for the Flint Symphony about an hour north of Ann Arbor. And they, the excerpts were fairly standard and I had a car. So I drove her up and I figured might as well take the audition too. So I prepared, I prepared, I made a bunch of reads and I think it helped that I, I didn't make myself too nervous having my heart set on it. Uh, but I ended up winning the audition and got to play with this really wonderful, friendly orchestra of, uh, of people and a conductor, Enrique Demet, who's, uh, he's been there for decades and still really beloved by the musicians. Uh, he had in his contract, he got to do Mahler every year. Uh, he was really sweet to us. My birthday's in January and he would, al- he would always program the big oboe excerpts, uh, for my birthday in January. That's so sweet. Yeah. So I got to play a lot of the really, Nice solos then, so that would be when we do Beethoven 3, uh, Tumble to Cooperen, uh, I got to play Mozart Concerto one year, uh, so it was a really nice, supportive, uh, jovial orchestral environment. And I actually kept that job, uh, uh, when I went to grad school, uh, at Yale to, to study with Mr. Kilmer. Uh, he encouraged me to keep traveling back to Michigan, and I was breaking even on these trips, because the, the paycheck for the orchestra was about paying for the travel and the lodging. But I just love these people and I love playing music with them. 
So it was a really nice thing to get to keep doing while I was in grad school. And by the time I was done at Yale, in my last year there, I did the blitz that most people do when they realize they're done with school. And uh, I started freaking out and taking every single audition. And there was a, a period of 12 weeks where, a period of eight weeks, sorry, where I took 12 uh, auditions. Uh, some, uh, there was one day when I took two in one day. And, and one of the early auditions was an interview for a combination teaching and performing job at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville. And so I loved my visit there. Uh, the people were really nice, and Charlottesville is a beautiful place to live. So I was really looking forward to getting the news on that. Like a lot, like both of you, I'm sure, have experienced with these academic uh, things. It has to go through so much red tape that I didn't find out that I had the offer for the job until over a month after my visit. And I got the, I got the call when I was warming up for another audition. <laughs> I didn't end up taking that audition. I ended up, uh, I ended up accepting the job on the spot, which is apparently not what you're supposed to do. The, the, <laughs> no, don't accept it. Read through your contract. Uh, <laughs> okay. I'm like, Oh no, I, I love it there. I'm, I'm, I'm moving there. We're going to be good friends. But he, he didn't accept my acceptance. I read through the contract. It was good. Uh, and I, I moved to Charlottesville and got to teach a really brilliant bunch of students there. It's not a traditional school of music. It's a very liberal arts department. And all of my students, in addition to oboe, were studying something else. A lot of doctors, lawyers, academics, scholars, um, people who ended up becoming dentists, heart surgeons, uh, all of them telling me later that oboe prepared them for everything. Uh, and that learning how to make reads wound up in a lot of their job interviews is tell me about something interesting and challenging you've done. <laughs> so I got to, I got to work with them. I taught there for eight years and during my time teaching there, since I'd only had a master's, I, while, while holding that job, had a full-time student load finishing my doctorate at James Madison University and starting a year into my time there, uh, the, the teacher there unfortunately got, got sick and had to take leave. So I ended up being the oboe teacher there while I was in school. Uh, so I, I was teaching at James Madison, University of Virginia, uh, finishing my doctorate. And by the time I was done, I, I had the opportunity, uh, to interview for the job at University of Wisconsin Madison, which is where I just got to visit with both of you, which is lots of fun. I hope all the listeners have a chance to hear the Driftless Winds at some point. I loved your concert. Oh, thank you. <laughs> My students loved it, too. Chamber music participation increased uh, right after your visit. You made it look like so much fun. That's awesome. Yeah. And so uh, we loved living in Madison for a couple years. And then at uh, both of, uh, all three of those jobs were of a lecturer adjunct nature, uh, uh, is a lot of the ways people get into the academic profession with non-tenure track jobs. But of course, at some point, um, it becomes necessary to get a job that you know what it's going to be over the course of a few decades. And the a tenure track job opened at the University of Nevada, Reno, and I applied for it and got it. And I just moved here a couple weeks ago, and I've been enjoying exploring Lake Tahoe nearby, uh, gorgeous part, parts of the region, Fraser Falls, uh, June Lake, and I've been told by the people here that if I, that there's no chance I'll be able to see every gorgeous place, even if I go somewhere every weekend, because there, there, there's so many beautiful places to see. 
This is a, actually a really good segue. Um, we uh, posted your meme yesterday. I hope you loved Cher. <laughs> oh, okay. you gotta love Cher. <laughs> you gotta love memes. <laughs> totally. And a listener submitted a question on Instagram, and it is submitted by Eric, and he wanted to know about how you got your first job in academia, what was the interview process like, um, what can you tell us about that whole experience, auditioning and interviewing for your first job? The wonderful thing about that interview is that the whole time it was, I never felt like it was an interview. I did all these mock interviews in advance of it to make sure I had my answers prepared. And then I showed up and it just felt like a friendly getting to know you conversation about uh, musical ideas, teaching philosophy, uh, ways of building a studio. And I I didn't feel like I was being tested uh, since I knew that I, for the recital, pretty standard in any academic interview that you'll play a recital, knowing that you have that much time and they're not going to cut you off after three minutes. I got some water in a key and I knew I had time to clean it out and recover that there, there was no reality where I was going to play the perfect audition. So it felt like getting to know some people. Uh, the teaching sample uh, was a lot of fun that you get to teach a lesson in front of people. I love the master class setting, getting to teach in front of an audience. And so, yeah, it was a, it was a master class an interview, getting to have lunch with everybody, which of course, uh, Fairly standard fare, and I'm sure you've both experienced it this way, that uh, anyone entering the academic profession, when you go have lunch or dinner, they'll tell you, oh, this isn't the interview, you can just relax. Um, but it's an important part of the interview because they're they're seeing if you're the kind of person that they're going to want to have in their community, possibly for several years, maybe even decades. So I think it's important to be able to be a real person with them. And it's, it's a tough thing to go from master class voice where you're standing up and trying to say things that change uh, someone's playing in a, in a powerful way to being just relaxed and normal like you would when you're hanging out. But luckily it was a really, it was a really friendly environment. Uh, so we had, we had Thai lunch and then I went home feeling like I, in the mock interviews, there were all these, questions of, oh, tell us about your greatest personal weakness and all these textbook things. They never really asked that. And I, it felt like a very fluid conversation to me, which I think you want it to feel like if it's a job that you want to take, uh, that you want to feel comfortable with the people. And I, I, I'm sure that any listeners heard the audition advice that you're auditioning them as much as they're auditioning you. So I feel like I went into it with a mentality of, do I want to work with these people uh, and live here as much as are they going to like me? But also, I played my recital program from memory, which I don't always do, but it it gave me some confidence to feel like I was coming in knowing knowing what I was doing. That's a really bold strategy, actually. <laughs> I haven't used an interview since. Uh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was empower. It was empowering to do that. And on that interview, a lot of the it, it helped that a lot of it was orchestral excerpts because that job was split with the Charlottesville Symphony that you would teach the students there, but you and coach chamber music, but also play principal in the orchestra. And my students were playing second oboe in English horn. So since the job was half funded by the orchestra, I a lot of the audition 
was all the standard excerpts that we'd ever play as much as it was also solo literature. We got another question for you from Dylan, who asks, you've lived in a multitude of biomes <laughs> during your oboe career. Has it affected your choices in reed making process, instrument condition and selection, and the physical requirements in playing? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. In ways that are in some ways predictable, in some ways unpredictable. So when I was living in Virginia, I was playing in many different altitudes. So Charlottesville was one altitude. Roanoke was a little bit higher. Wintergreen was a little bit higher than that. And the thing that I, I knew that as I went higher, my reads would get tougher to play and a little bit sharper. But I couldn't just predictably make easy, flat reads and know that they'd work. I would just take my normal reads up there. And I would try to get to rehearsals an hour early to make sure that I could adjust the reads. I usually have to thin the tip a little bit more, maybe blend the sides of the heart in. But the question would be how much? Because I really, I try really hard never to play a reed that crows below a C. So, because then I'd have to bite and all of the usual reasons. So I, I value stable reads and that, that means I really don't want to go too far with that. So that's why I make sure when I'm going to a new place, that I take normal reads and adjust when I get there. Yesterday, Reno's at 5,000 feet and Lake Tahoe's at 7,000 feet. So I was teaching at a music camp all day. I brought my reads up to 7,000 feet. And wow, you re anyone who's ever been up there knows you sort of huff and puff if you even just walk across the street. Mm -hmm. So the breathing, the breathing becomes an interesting exercise. I've been told that once I'm living here for a while, going back to sea level is going to feel really easy. So when I come, uh, come to Hattiesburg to visit Ugali, I'm hoping that all my reads feel great. Oh, you're going to breathe so easy down here. I think we're at like 200-something feet. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that some amount of adaptation with reads is very necessary and not getting too hung up on all of your reads looking the same as much as having a really clear idea of what function you want out of them. I think People with reads uh, can drive themselves crazy thinking of too many complicated things. Any Anytime I'm in a read slump, I get back to the very basics with it of, does it respond well in the low notes? Are the high notes stable? Uh, does the air move through it uh, without too much resistance, but just enough so you feel like you're pushing against something? And is the tone something where more is good? And whenever I get back to that and sharpen my knife, then my reads get better. But if I if I try to get any more ambitious than that, then it gets too complicated. Um, what is some of the best read-making advice you've received? Make a lot of reads. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, this sort of goes hand-in-hand -hand, uh, with audition advice I've received. But I think that the read-making process can be frustrating for people if they judge themselves on their yield. <laughs> themselves. Ourselves. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And that we, we all have batches every once in a while where we'll tie eight, ten blanks and get no useful reads out of that. And that can make you miserable unless you take the attitude of trying to learn something from every single read. So if you, if you make a bunch of reads and you have sort of a reflective process with it of why didn't this one work, having a clear language for it, uh, that's why I'm always going back to response, pitch, resistance, tone. 
to know, oh, this this read didn't work because I could never get I could never get it to respond right, or this read didn't work because it was it was uh, wobbly in pitch. And just to be very uh, bluntly analytical with them, then if you're always learning from every read you make, you make, then your reads are your reads are going to get better over time. I think also trying to enjoy the process. I often have Netflix or podcasts on. I listen to a lot of double read dish while making reads, and I make better reads when I listen to double read dish. So. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> <laughs> we have that in writing, so we can put it on our website. For sure, for sure. Well, as a special, I remember making reads while I was listening to the Diana Doherty episode and hearing Diana Doherty talk about feeling self-conscious about her tone I made me know. much better. Because <laughs> I, was, I was having a tough read day and then thinking, wow, one of the most amazing sounds in the world doesn't always she doesn't always think that she has an amazing sound maybe we're all going to be okay <laughs> so, right. and so i kept at it and made reads for a little longer that day and, and I, I ended up with some useful reads so it was really encouraging uh i think uh social support is good with reads getting to make reads with people when i was in school i was there were always other oboists making reads with me uh so that it never felt uh terribly isolated so yeah finding finding ways to make it fun uh, I make my reads over several days, too, and I try not to judge them early. I, I, I don't rank them until the very end of the process when I, when I can take them out of the case and they pass all the tests without any work. So that stops me from being too hung up or judgmental, like, oh, which of these blanks is going to be the amazing one? Because then if, if I pick which one's going to be the amazing one, I get too nervous while I'm scraping it, mm -hmm. as opposed to here's a pile of them. I'll do the procedures and see what happens. Mm -hmm. On your YouTube channel, you have recorded all of the Fairling etudes. Can you talk to us about this project and what you learned from it? One of the many things I've enjoyed about this show is hearing oboists and bassoonists I admire talk about uh, their struggles. And the Fairling project was actually the result of one of my low points where I was experiencing burnout for the first time. And I was, I was overcommitted to too many things. And I was trying to think about the reasons why I was doing anything that I was doing. And it boiled down to five different good reasons to do something. I was trying to figure out what I could cut out of my life, basically. So I, I narrowed it down to five qualities. That something had to be a contractual obligation. It had to, or it could be something that was enriching and made me a better musician. Uh, it could be something fun because fun's really important. Uh, or a, a very rare one, it could be career defining, which there aren't that many examples of something that comes up that you should drop everything to do because it'll go on your bio, but that does count. Uh, or it could be something that you do because it's lucrative and it helps you uh, pay the bills. But I, I always list that one last for a reason that I feel like it should be just one of five reasons and not the only reason to do something. So... I looked at those five qualities of obligation, uh, enrichment, enjoyment, uh, career definition, and uh, payment, and I was trying to figure out what in my life was I getting the least of, and it was enrichment. I, I looked at all my activities, and I couldn't point to enough of them and say that they were making me a better oboist, so I uh, decided to do what a lot of people do and go right back to the etude books that I studied, so I was playing a lot of Barrett, playing a lot of Fairling. Uh, and decided to challenge myself with the Fairling book and try to see if I could take myself through the whole thing. So for accountability, 
I started a YouTube channel and put up the first four, figuring I'd send it to my students. Maybe my family could hear me play a little bit more since I lived across the country. And then suddenly I realized people were really watching them, which made me so much more nervous for the next set because I was really playing these incredibly challenging etudes for an audience. So for the next set, it took me more takes to get it right. And I realized I was getting so much better with this recording process of knowing that I'd promised to put one up every week. And so over the course of a little less than a year, I was going to have to play every fairling in a version that I was willing to put up for anyone to see. So I, yeah, I called it the Fairling Fridays series. And I was recording, sometimes I would try to record, I would try to record around four at a time. In one session, I got eight because I really liked my read that day, uh, tiring as it was. But some days I got zero. And just like with reads, the days when I got no usable takes, I learned so much and they completely changed my practice habits. A lot of what I was learning was um, just very basic things of spending more time practicing with the metronome, spending more time practicing with the drone. And then I would go back to the next recording session. And it was just easier and more fun to play when I would spend more time working on those basics. And so putting together the whole series uh, was one of those moments of being your own teacher and got me to do the thing that I, it, well, I guess as a, as a side story, teaching technique wise, I used to have my students record themselves sort of as an accountability measure that if, if I felt like they weren't practicing as much as they could, then I would have them record themselves. And I knew they'd learn from it. They'd come in the next week and play better. The thing I discovered was that they were enjoying improving. Mm-hmm. So instead of having my students record themselves as a negative form of punishment, I was having all of my students record themselves because it's an amazing, wonderful thing to do. It's always scary at first, but in my observation, anytime my students do it over the course of multiple weeks, it's so obvious how much you improve from it because you hear your, the difference in your recordings that it gets to a point where they enjoy the challenge which is sort of the point of studying music entirely, I think. So, yeah, I got a lot out of that Fairling project. It really impacted the way I practice and the way I teach. We have this amazing tool called the Internet now and amazing platform in social media. Um, what encouragements and or cautions would you give to students and pre-professionals and the next generation coming into professional musicianship on using this tool? Oh, uh, I'd say that it is a valuable tool. Uh, It is a way for us all over the world to be reminded that we're all part of the same community to feel connected to each other. I think especially for Oboist, it means you get to know the people who live around you, but you also realize you're part of this worldwide family. The caution is that the internet is very much in ink. And that even if you put something up on on social media that you delete later, it's something that could be found. Um, So that I don't think that that means that someone should be someone who has no opinions. I I think it is important to actually have values and pursue good in the world. But I think that you want to only put something up on the Internet that you'd be okay with absolutely anyone reading, including a future employer. So it's important to. For instance, have good writing mechanics. Uh, um, it's good to monitor your language, make sure that 
uh, that you're proud of anything that you say. Um, I know that I, I do a fair amount on social media commenting on current events. Uh, but I, I know that, uh, I'm very proud of the fact that I have a lot of close friends who have worldviews that are different from mine. They broaden my horizons. Hopefully I broaden theirs. And anytime I write something that I put on social media, I ask myself the question of, am I okay with it? Do I think that if they read this, they'll be offended? Or do, do I think that they'll actually uh, think that it's a thoughtfully written statement about the world? Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm projecting, but I would anticipate that anyone who does a audition completely memorized by their own choice um, has at least somewhat of a handle on performance anxiety and, and how to deal with that. Can you talk to us about advice for dealing with performance anxiety? Oh my goodness. Well, so performance anxiety, I, it, it's, it's a blessing and a curse that I experience it rarely, but when I do, it's brutal mm-hmm. that uh, without, without getting too graphic. I make I make myself sick uh, occasionally for for some high stakes performances uh, and some for some performances I've needed help getting on stage and and putting on my socks. So I experience a, a fairly well diagnosed um, anxiety panic disorder, um, which made me. It, it didn't come up until uh, my mid twenties. I've heard a lot of people tell tell it this way that they thought that as they went along uh, in the ex- in ex- gaining experience that they would get less nervous because they were improving. But I would, I would say that I suffered pretty hard from imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. And once the, once it flipped from a, Oh, you're a student with some potential to, Oh, you're the professional. You must know what you're doing. That really froze me. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and when I was a student, I was busy playing all the time and enjoying it. And the performances to me felt like uh, possibilities as opposed to expectations. Uh, but as I became more of a professional, um, it started to be that if I was playing a concerto or a recital or something like that, that there was an expectation that it was going to be a special performance. And I think that as an oboist, it's so hard to predict when you're going to have a good day. And I invested way too much energy into hoping that those would be above average days. I encourage everyone to seek help anytime uh, they're experiencing uh, mental health struggles. I'm very happy that I saw a very good therapist who taught me how to, she, she had a really good way of inducing some anxiety in me and teaching me to breathe through it. Um, I did a lot of, uh, for, for a few years, I had a daily yoga practice. Uh, I practiced, I practiced Ashtanga yoga and that gave me a lot of insights into how little control you have over a good day or a bad day. And so my anxiety attacks, they happen less often and they've become less severe mostly because, um, I've had more, more of an approach of trying to make my make my below average days still pretty okay. Uh, so to aim for more consistency instead of thinking, oh, I have something coming up in November and thinking months in advance, that day in November has to be the best day of the year. Um, I've tried to take more of an approach of 
oh, I, I hope my low notes and high notes sounds pretty good all the time. Uh, and I'll enjoy the special days when they happen. But for all I know, the special days might just be when I'm working on reads in my own house and only my dog can hear them. Uh, and that'll be fine too. I'll enjoy this. I'll, I'll enjoy them. One thing I've learned from listening to recordings of myself is that when I'm thinking I'm having an amazing day, I get the recording back. It's, it's good, but it's not as different as it feels. And when I'm having a day that feels below average, it's never as bad as it felt when I'm on stage, uh, which has really relaxed me about trying to make any given performance feel routine. I think it helps to have lots and lots of performances so that you have enough sample size to know some of them are going to be pretty bad. Uh, like you're going to have some low notes not come out. You're going to have pretty bad water in a key. Like any of us who've ever gotten water in their F key that it just gurgles like crazy. That's going to happen sometimes. Um, and you just never know when it is. And it's important to maintain a sense of humor about it. You know, Oh yeah, I've got another show a few days from now might be better. And I'll try to have fun with all of them. Yeah, it's all pitching the perfect game thing. I, I love it when a mistake happens early in the concert so that you can then say, oh, now the goal is going to be to have fun, not to be perfect. Right. Yeah. Switching gears a little bit, I would love to know what are some of your favorite pieces to play? And this can be anything, solo, chamber, orchestral, anything. Ooh. Uh, well, I Bach cantatas, uh, some of the best stuff ever written. Um, Beethoven symphonies, uh, Brahms symphonies are challenging. Uh, Mahler symphonies, uh, I've enjoyed a lot of the new music that I've gotten to play. I've, I've, I've been lucky to collaborate with some composers. I know I, I got to hang out with you, Galit, at the Columbus Conven- convention. I, I played a piece by Jim Torito that he'd written mm-hmm. for me, Song of the Warrior. Mm-hmm. I forget about that concert, but it was a lot of fun. It had, a bunch of different devices. I enjoy new music that that an audience can appreciate. It has some video game music components, love songs. It had its share of multiphonics programmatically. Uh, has some jazz elements. Uh, I enjoy mu- new music that gives me a lot of chances to play with variety uh, and expand definitions of what the oboe can be expected to do. And yeah, yeah, I was just playing a new new piece by Laura Schwendinger, uh, my my colleague at Wisconsin. And, yeah, uh, and I've been I in the last couple of years I've been picking up Baroque oboe, and I got to play the Saint John Passion on four fifteen instruments, which was really exciting, unique opportunity that I get hope gets to happen more as as things go and I get better at it. Could you talk to us about? A favorite memory of a past performance. Sometimes people take this to embarrassing moment, maybe memorable for the wrong reason, but we'd love to hear about a moment that sticks out in your mind on stage. There, there was a performance of the Mozart Quartet, which I should have I should have said is probably my individual favorite piece to play uh, mm. for for oboe. Uh, for my master's recital. I, I had worked up a whole program with piano and the pianist, um, was hard to reach and rehearsals, uh, were tough to schedule and he showed up unprepared to one of them. So I had to, I had to scrap the whole program and I put together a program fairly last minute and had a few, a few string players agree to play the Mozart quartet with me. And I was, I got really nervous for this one. I was in, I was in a pretty advanced panic attack. We had only had one rehearsal and 
right before we got on stage, the violinist and I, we just, he, he had also, he had just done a 48 hour fast uh, as part of his uh, Hindu tradition. So we were both pretty zonked <laughs> uh, and nervous. So backstage, we decided, we were like, this is going to be an adventure. Let's just have some fun. So we decided from go that it was going to be a risky, fun musical adventure. And we got up there and we started improvising ornaments. <laughs> and so we, we made it jazz. And um, that was sort of the birth of a really nice, we ended up being best man for each other's weddings. <laughs> Uh, out of that friendship because we kept, we kept going back to how much fun we had in that performance. Uh, and I listen, I, I listen to the recording of it fairly often to remind myself how I want, how I want to feel on stage. And the school ended up put, putting it on their podcast and occasionally people would listen to it and they'd ask me about it. It, it, it actually got, it got heard fairly widely. And sometimes people would, would say, so those ornaments, which of your teachers told you to do them? Was it Stephen Taylor or Richard Kilmer or Nancy? <laughs> and so I, I, I had to say, oh, no, they, they don't get any of the blame because I could never tell if people were criticizing the fact that I, I changed such a beloved, sacred piece of music and that it must have changed their expectations about it. Uh, I just I just had so much fun with it, even though half of the ornaments were a little bit I wouldn't do them again if I if I were to compose it. But just the energy from that is something that I'm always trying to recapture anytime I play. And uh, and I'm, I'm really lucky, again, to still work with that violinist. He's in the L.A. Philharmonic now, and he runs a program called Street Symphony out in L.A. Um, that works with homeless popula- uh, populations, uh, people who are incarcerated, people experiencing mental illness in downtown L.A., and they bring music to them, and they've gotten to a point where they're collaborating with them. And in December... Uh, we're going to do a uh, Messiah project, assembling an orchestra with a choir of those populations in downtown LA. And that he, sounds like an amazing project. Yeah, yeah, VJ, VJ, he's he's doing some really interesting things and in expanding the role of the arts in communities. And that's a, that's a lot of the perks for me of moving out west is that I'm getting to collaborate more with those sorts of projects with him. If you weren't an oboist, what would you be doing now? If it weren't for oboe, a lot of what I like about oboe is uh, the puzzle-solving nature of it. I loved high school math. I had amazing high school math teachers, and I was pretty strongly thinking I was going to end up being a high school math teacher, except that this gets to a pretty personal nature. But I I left school one day uh, and was taken to my, my grandmother on my father's side, uh, was pretty obviously having her, her last day. She was on her deathbed and I got to have a conversation with her. And, uh, she, she asked me, Aaron, this is your Jewish grandmother talking. Are you going to be a doctor? <laughs> and, and so I was, I was 15 and I was like, Oh, um, I could be, do, do you think I should be? And she said, no, don't be a doctor. And she said this in front of all of her doctors who were really sweet and wonderful. <laughs> uh, she said, don't be a doctor. You seem to like music. Do music. And those were uh, those were actually her last words on earth. <laughs> so amazing. that changed gears for me. But anytime, anytime I've had second thoughts about music, high school math always gets to be the key. Because Just like I love working with oboe students, and showing them that they can do something that seems 
uh, outside their range of capability by making the puzzle a little, little bit more manageable to solve. Uh, I feel like math teachers do the same thing and they teach people how to learn things that are unfamiliar. So they get a lot of the same uh, process enjoyment out of it. To close, what advice do you have for a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours? A couple things. One is to spend as much time playing music and being around people who, uh, who give you joy that, uh, I think that as much, that having, having them be really good players to inspire you is, is one thing, but having them be people you're really looking forward to see is the kind of thing that will really energize and motivate you to practice. Um, for, for me, everything has always been about seeking out colleagues. I really love working with, um, at every stage. Another is to realize that you're going to hear a lot of, um, uh, motivational talks about how hard it is to get a job in music. And it really is that, a lot of qualified people show up to auditions. I've been on the other side of committees, too, and uh, committees always know that there are plenty of really wonderful people that they're that aren't going to get the job. Um, so to know that what you're doing as a student also counts. Um, I had a lot of thoughts when I was a student of maybe this will be the performance. Someone hears it. They'll, they'll call someone. They'll call someone. It'll be the thing that makes a difference. No, nothing like that really ever happens, I don't think. Uh, maybe more for opera singers. But, but for, for us, I have the, I have Beethoven three coming up next week and I, I got to play it in high school. I got to play it in college. I got to play it in uh, grad school with, a, with a regional group. Anytime you play Beethoven three, it's still Beethoven three. And it doesn't count more if you're doing it with a professional group than if you're doing it with a student group, it's the same incredible notes. And I, I kept expecting it to feel different if I, quote unquote, made it. And so I had, I'd say, too much energy invested in the question of, will I make it? <laughs> um, so I'd say there's also been, uh, I got a lot out of reading the book, uh, The Happiness Hypothesis. Jonathan Haidt um, talks a lot about things like making sure you exercise and have nice community social connections. Um, but he talks about uh, psychology of gamblers and how uh, if you put too much energy into uh, trying to win things and thinking that climbing ladders is going to bring you joy, that's going to be fairly disappointing. Winning, and I, I, I'd say, I, like most of the people who've been on the show, I've lost most auditions I've ever taken. I've, I've won a few, and, and winning, I mean, it, it's nice, but it never feels as good as you think it's going to, and so... Any experience you have auditioning should be mostly about, did I enjoy playing that day? And did I learn something from the experience of playing that day? And if, if every experience has some level of enjoyment and some level of growth, you'll always have plenty of opportunities to play music with good people. And to make sure that anytime, anytime it's hard, you ask people around you for help and you lean on the fact that the, the oboe community is a very friendly support supportive place. We're very generous with information. And luckily, since we all have bad days with reads, uh, it inspires us to be very helpful with each other because all of us have been helped a lot by uh, our mentors, our peers, uh, and any, anyone who's coming up as uh, high school right now, uh, you keep on playing. You'll be our colleagues pretty soon. Uh, and I think that any of us in the pr profession really see it that way. So we want to do anything we possibly can to Make, make the oboe puzzle a little bit easier for you. 
Wow, that was great. Thank you so much, Erin. It was really, really wonderful to have you on the podcast. Oh, thanks, Glee. Thanks, Jackie. We hope you love that interview with Aaron Hill, and you can find more Double Read Dish stuff on all our social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and SoundCloud. And don't forget to join us next time where we will bring you an interview with bassoonist Nicolasa Custer from University of the Pacific Conservatory of Music.